You're watching First Move. Great to be with you this Wednesday and plenty coming up for you within the next hour, including Trump truculence, the former U.S. president calling his arrest on 37 federal criminal charges, a, quote, heinous abuse of power. The frontrunner for the Republican presidential nomination now facing his most serious political and legal test yet. The very latest on Trump's Mar-a-Lago moment just ahead. Plus, a Milanese memorial, a national day of mourning in Italy, as thousands pay their last respects to former Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi, the leader who fundamentally transformed modern-day messaging in politics. We'll take you live to Milan's cathedral in just a moment's time. But what you are seeing at this moment is live pictures of his casket being carried into the Duomo Cathedral in Milan. The pallbearers there, as you can see, officers, a military salute, the crowds actually clapping and chanting, only one president as he entered the cathedral. We'll take you there once again in just a few moments. And in the meantime, a pause with a clause. The US Federal Reserve announcing its rate decision in five hours' time. No hike expected from Powell & Co., despite data suggesting they probably should. Policymakers set to keep us on our toes this summer with their forecast too. We'll discuss. And on global markets, the June stock boom still in bloom amid Fed policy optimism. U.S. futures at this moment, little change, the Dow tilting to the downside. But the S&P and the Nasdaq begin today's sessions at fresh one-year highs. Europe also on the rise. The German DAX, in fact, hitting all-time records. Bullish action over in Asia, too. A scorching day for Japan's Nikkei, which finished up almost 1.5%. It has gained almost 30% so far this year. And Asian investors, too, on Chinese stimulus watch. The central bank expects to cut another key interest rate tomorrow to try and jumpstart growth. A sharp contrast to interest rate trajectories across the Western world. Lots to get to, as always, but we do begin with a humanitarian tragedy unfolding off the coast of Greece. At least 78 people are known to have lost their lives in the Mediterranean Sea after a boat carrying migrants capsized in international waters. A search and rescue operation is underway for hundreds more people believed to have been on board. Bobby Nadal is in Rome covering this story for us. Bobby, so far, how many people have been rescued? And I've seen reports that up to 750 people could have been on that vessel. What more do we know? Well, we know 104 people were taken alive uh, out of the waters so far. And, you know, we don't know how many people are on that boat. We don't probably will never find out how many people were on that boat. Smugglers do not keep uh, dedicated manifestos of passengers and things like that. So we won't know. We'll know if they choose to bring the boat up, how many people may have been locked into the lower uh, levels of the boat. That is the standard way some of these large migrant boats come across. This boat, we understand, came from Libya and it was on its way to Italy somehow ended up in the waters, probably due to currents and winds and the lack of motor and things like that. Um, but so often we, these tragedies become a, a forgotten marker in this struggle to stop this irregular migration into Europe. We know right now the European Union is working very, very hard with Tunisia and Libya to try to make some investments to stop the boats from coming. That doesn't stop the tragedy uh, at all. But, um, you know, will as they, as they try to pull bodies out of this boat, if they're able to reach it and, and things like that, we'll know more. But the tragedy... 
uh, is one of many. You know, this has been a banner year for migration across the Mediterranean Sea, and it's also been a very deadly year. We've heard we've had so many of these horrific shipwrecks so far this year, and traditionally. The boats start coming around this time, and so we've had a very busy year so far uh, following these migration stories. Um, there's going to be more news on this, and it's not going to be good, Julia. No, heartbreaking. Bobby, thank you for that. Bobby Nadal there in Rome. And President Trump back in his golf club in New Jersey on his 77th birthday. This after an unprecedented court appearance in Miami on Tuesday. The former U.S. president pleaded not guilty to all 37 federal charges in the classified documents case. Sarah Murray has the details. It's called election interference and yet another attempt to rig and steal a presidential election. More importantly, it's a political persecution like something straight out of a fascist or a communist nation. Former President Donald Trump maintaining his innocence in the face of 37 federal charges related to his alleged mishandling of classified documents. I hadn't had a chance to go through all the boxes. It's a long, tedious job. It takes a long time, which I was prepared to do, but I have a very busy life. Trump speaking before a crowd of supporters at his Bedminster Golf Club, capping a historic day that included the first federal arraignment of a former president. We can't just deny what that what President Trump did was wrong. I mean, it's clear as day wrong. And I don't care whether you are a Trump supporter or a Trump opposer. You have to take this seriously. Trump surrendered at a federal courthouse in Miami Tuesday afternoon. His attorney telling the court on Trump's behalf, we most certainly enter a plea of not guilty. In the courtroom, Trump sat with his arms crossed at a table flanked by his two lawyers. Trump did not address the court. Also seated at that table, his aide and co-defendant, Walt Nada. Nada could not enter a plea because he did not have a Florida lawyer present. Of the 37 counts Trump faces, some are for obstruction, but most are for the willful retention of national defense information. Threatening me with 400 years in prison for possessing my own presidential papers, which just about every other president has done, is one of the most outrageous and vicious legal theories ever put forward in an American court of law. The judge presiding over the arraignment did not impose any travel restrictions, but told Trump he could not speak to any of the potential witnesses in the case. Trump's attorney objected, insisting many of the witnesses in this case are people employed by the former president. The judge clarified that Trump could not speak about the facts of the case with any of the witnesses, including Nada, and asked prosecutors to provide a list of the witnesses in the case. Also present in the courtroom, special counsel Jack Smith, though he did not speak during the hearing. Trump was greeted by a crowd as his motorcade left the courthouse. He made an unannounced stop at the famous Cuban restaurant Versailles in Miami's Little Havana, where he was met by dozens of supporters. He entered the restaurant with Nada by his side and spoke to religious leaders. After the indictment, Trump's former vice president, Mike Pence, spoke about the charges after previously urging the Justice Department not to indict the former president. And I have had the opportunity to read the indictment uh, that was filed. I can't defend what's alleged. These are serious allegations. And the handling of, of classified materials, as I learned in my years as vice president and my years on the Foreign Affairs Committee, is a very serious matter that bears upon the national security of the United States. 
And a pivotal decision for the Federal Reserve today, too. The U.S. Central Bank expected to take a beat and hold rates steady after 10 straight interest rate hikes. The latest producer price index also showing that inflation is cooling and perhaps also reinforces the view of some that it's time to pause their aggressive rate hike campaign. Christine Romans joins us now. It's a moot point, really, because they've signaled this so clearly that they've got no choice other than to be on hold today. The question is, what do they say about what next? Exactly. And, you know, and today's producer price index report, I mean, gives them the ammunition to do nothing today. I mean, when you look, these are pre-pandemic levels for for factory floor inflation. I mean, I think that really is notable here. And you're back to December 2020 before this inflation nightmare really rubbed up. So this is important progress on the inflation front. But we don't know how durable it is. And we don't know some of these core factors in consumer inflation, if those are going to still be a problem. And that's what we want to hear, hear what the Fed chief has to say about what they're going to do next here. I mean, I guess, Julia, if you think that if if you take the lag at, at say, 12 months, there's a lot more tightening that's still going to hit hit the economy in the days and months ahead. So what does the Fed say about the necessity to continue its rate hike campaign or to maybe um, maybe extend this pause? There's a lot of debate about it this morning, to be honest. I mean, I've been listening to economists really and strategists, frankly, really debate what the Fed does in July, if it now has ammunition to pause in July or if it is uh, cognizant of some of these core factors that are still a problem. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned exactly what, and I would agree with it, the 12-month pause, we're sort of guessing what the timeline is between hiking interest rates in such close succession and then the impact on the real economy. Um, The other challenge is what does one month buy you really in terms of information? It doesn't buy you much, so it's all a bit finger in the wind at this stage. Offset that, we're still too high inflation, a strong jobs market and uh, stock markets that seem to defy gravity, thanks perhaps to tech stocks. And, and a housing market that's showing signs mm. of recovering, believe it or not. I mean, the housing market had been the only place for months that we had seen really the real effects of the tightening. And now you're seeing a housing market that's showing signs of resilience. So you're right. There's this question. Is the stock, are the markets signaling that the Fed hasn't done its job well enough yet and that it does need to do uh, more tightening? So that's where this debate is. You know, it's just been such a, uh, and I wrote a piece recently called From Broken to Bizarre, How to Read the, the, the U.S. Economy Today. And, you know, that's... That's what that, that's basically, I mean, in a nutshell, what the Fed has to decide here after being broken from from covid and a war in Ukraine and now recovering with all of this, um, all of this massive tightening in the system and a banking sector, by the way, that they have to watch as well. I mean, there they have two goals here that are cross purposes to slow the economy and slow inflation, but not tighten so much that you throw a wrench into the banking system. So this is a, a just a balancing act, unlike I've ever seen, I think. A delicate dance. But to be fair, we have been calling this economy bizarre for about three years now. <laughs> Maybe pushing for Painful. Christine, great to have you. Thank You're you. Welcome. Christine Raymond's there. OK, to Ukraine now. More civilian casualties to report following a Russian missile attacks overnight. At least three lives lost in southern city of Odessa and another three killed in the eastern Donetsk region. Meanwhile, the Ukrainian military is claiming further territorial gains in Zaporizhia. And that's where we find our Fred Plyken. Fred, I believe you've been spending time with some of the troops on the front line. How are they doing and how's morale? 
Hi there, Julia. Well, it certainly is going for the, for the Ukrainians. They are saying that they are making territorial gains on some places in the front line, specifically uh, the area where we were, where they say that they managed to take back a couple of villages there. But they also say that the going is extremely tough. They're able to move forward, but the Russians are putting up massive and very stiff resistance using artillery and using combat jets as well. Here's what we witnessed. Ukrainian forces firing at Russian troops hold up in Blagodatnya in south Ukraine. This video, the brigade says, shows the Russians making a final stand here. Much of the area near the front lines deeply scarred by combat. This is the area of Ukraine where the heaviest fighting is currently taking place. And you can see what it's done to a lot of the buildings and the cities and villages around this area. And that fighting is set to get even worse. We're with the 68th Jaeger Brigade, which has been making important gains here. The soldiers confident and grateful for U.S. supply gear. A lot of the times it saved my life, he says. It saves our lives every day from shrapnel, shelling and bullets. But some of the vehicles have already been lost and the Russians continue to fire back. Constant artillery shelling and even airstrikes too close for comfort as our crew had to duck for cover. commander says his soldiers are just getting started. Our counterattack will definitely be successful, he says. We believe in victory. We are moving forward towards our goal. We are advancing. On this part of the front line, the Ukrainians believe they have the gear, the manpower and the determination to advance far into Russian-held territory. So as you can see, Julia, some pretty tough battles that are going on there on that southern front in, in southeastern Ukraine. And of course, we were only on one small part of that front. It really is several hundred miles long. And there are areas, of course, where the going is even tougher for the Ukrainians. Where Late last week, the Russians claimed to have shot down a lot of Western-supplied armor. They're also putting out some videos. So... Uh, the going is definitely tough for the Ukrainians, but what really stood out to us, Julia, was the fact that morale was very high among those Ukrainian soldiers, especially after they've been able to make those initial gains. And those gains are very important. They go pretty deep into the territory that has been held by the Russians. But I think that the Ukrainians also very much understand that the going is only going to get tougher from here on. The Russians have very strong layered defenses in the hinterland. Those go on for a very large uh, part uh, or for very long distance. And the Ukrainians know that the Russians have some pretty tough soldiers down there on the ground as well. So nobody expecting that this offensive is going to be quick, that it's going to be short or that it's going to be easy. In fact, the Ukrainians say they understand, if anything, things are going to be long and things are going to get even tougher than they already are, Julia. Yeah, they're prepared. Fred, good to have you. Thank you. Fred Plank in there. And you're looking at live pictures of the Milan Cathedral, where two, the state funeral of Silvio Berlusconi is underway. The former prime minister passed away on Monday, aged 86, and thousands of people are watching from big screens in the city's main square, as we showed you earlier. It certainly marks the end of an era in both business and politics for the nation. Silvio Berlusconi's multi-billion dollar empire included TV networks, department stores and football clubs before he turned to politics in 1994.
Outside his villa, north of Milan, mourners have been leaving flags, flowers and other tributes. And Ben Weedman is in Rome and joins us now. Ben, it is a day of mourning in Italy for this state funeral. We were listening earlier to people clapping as the casket arrived at that cathedral and people shouting only one president. He certainly left his mark on Italy. Yes, he certainly did. And what we're seeing now in the uh, Duomo, or the main cathedral in Milan, is that it is full. Uh, there are about 2,000 people inside. Among the guests is Giorgia Meloni, the prime minister, Sergio Mattarella, the president of Italy. You also have, as guests from abroad, you have uh, Viktor Orban, the prime minister of Hungary, as well as the Emir of Qatar and the prime minister of Iraq. Missing, however, are people like Tony Blair, who was prime minister uh, when uh, at the same time as Berlusconi and George Bush, who was president uh, when Berlusconi was in power. Berlusconi was a major supporter of the American-led invasion of Iraq, but both Bush and Blair, who were proponents of that invasion, uh, have not shown up. Now, it is a national day of mourning, which is unprecedented in Italy. It's not a day off. It's not a holiday. Uh, but not everybody is happy about it. Uh, many Italians feel that for a prime minister who was convicted in 2013 of tax evasion, perhaps a day of mourning is a bit excessive. Uh, also, there are some who don't want to, for instance, lower the national flag to half-mask the University of Siena, University for Foreigners, has refused to lower their Italian flags uh, because they say it is uh, it would make the university lose moral credibility. But nonetheless, Milan is where Berlusconi is from, and it's not surprising that people have turned out uh, to mark his passing. Uh, the Piazza del Duomo outside of the cathedral isn't quite as full as one might expect under the circumstances. However, it's the middle of the working day and the middle of the work week. So perhaps that explains why not so many people are out there. Julia? Yes, uh, to your point, certainly a, a controversial figure, whether that was business, politics, legally to Ben as well. I believe as well that, that Parliament and parliamentary votes are also on hold for a week now. Berlusconi's party falls were Italia, of course, key in uh, the current government and, and had a huge role, I think, in, in promoting the current prime minister. What's been the reception to that, too? Well, the worry is that the coalition that Forza Italia, Berlusconi's party, uh, was part of and led by Giorgia Meloni, the prime minister, and her Fratelli d'Italia, a party uh, could fall apart. And uh, therefore, there's a certain amount of uncertainty. Italy, of course, does have a history of political instability with governments uh, falling at a frequent rate, at a regular rate. And uh, this could be the beginning of yet another period of political uncertainty if that coalition uh, falls apart. So it's not just the passing of Berlusconi, it's perhaps the passing of this current government. Julia? Yes, I think that's one of the questions too. And, and where will he be laid to rest, Ben? I, we believe he's going to be cremated and put 
on his property, the Villa San Martino, uh, outside of Milan, because according to Italian law, you cannot be buried your body uh, on private property. You have to be cremated and your ashes interned there. So we understand that that is uh, where his final resting place will be. Julia? Ben, thank you for that. Ben, we've been there in Rome. And later in the show, we'll hear from the editor of Italy's Domani newspaper to talk more about Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi's legacy. We're back after this. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken will travel to Beijing this weekend as the Biden administration continues to navigate its tense relationship with China. Secretary Blinken, if you remember, was supposed to make the trip back in early February, but it was rescheduled due to the surveillance balloon incident. Alex Marquardt joins us now. Alex, the good news is actually they've reestablished this trip and um, the two men hopefully will meet. What more do we know about what Secretary Blinken is going to do while there? Well, uh, Julia, the, the administration has been emphasizing for quite some time now the need to continue communicating, of course, during a period of, of increased tension uh, between the U.S. and China. We did see that meeting between uh, uh, Secretary of State Blinken and his counterparts uh, back in February canceled because uh, of that Chinese spy balloon that entered the United States from uh, Canadian airspace and then swept across the country. Uh, at the time, the State Department said that meetings uh, would not be productive. And the tension continued to grow from there. Remember, that meeting back in February was meant to follow on what had been described by both countries as productive meetings uh, by the presidents of the United States and China last November. Um, There have been continuing conversations in the meantime uh, between uh, the director of the CIA, Bill Burns, and his counterparts last month. Uh, We also saw the national security advisor to Joe Biden, Jake Sullivan, 
traveled to Vienna for conversations with Chinese officials. Uh, but very notably, uh, Julia, we saw the, the military relationship uh, hit a very icy patch when the Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin uh, tri- attempted to meet with his China, Chinese counterpart recently at a, at a summit in Singapore. That meeting was rejected. And that, of course, was against the backdrop of some very aggressive maneuvers uh, by the Chinese Navy and Air Force around Taiwan. We saw uh, a Chinese jet fly in front of a a U.S. uh, surveillance plane, uh, causing severe turbulence. Uh, We saw a a Chinese naval destroyer cross in front of of U.S. and and Canadian warships in the Taiwan Strait. Um, Of course, Taiwan, an extraordinarily sensitive issue uh, for for China. Uh, In in the conversation yesterday between Secretary Blinken and his Chinese counterpart, uh, the, the, the Chinese readout from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs said that the U.S. should stop interfering in China's internal affairs. Uh, But then this morning, uh, Julia, we get the news that Secretary Blinken does indeed plan to travel to Beijing this weekend. This, there were indications that this was going to be put back on the schedule. Uh, some top officials from the State Department and the White House had recently traveled to Beijing earlier this month. Uh, so there was a sense that this trip was coming, um, but it is now coming in, in, in the next few days. And it is certainly a continuation of the administration's desires uh, to keep these channels of communication open uh, at what continues to be a very tense time. Julia? Yes, I was about to say um, it's welcome news in non-diplomatic terms. The the relationship seems to be a complete mess. Alex, the other thing that we can throw onto the list here, and we've not even mentioned it, is perhaps hopes that China can play some kind of strategic, more important role in negotiations with regards um, Russia and Ukraine, whether those hopes are um, small ones. Also going to be on the agenda, I'm sure, I'm assuming too. It it certainly will be. Uh, Washington has watched with quite some concern. Um, the visits to Moscow uh, by Chinese officials, uh, the, the support uh, that China has shown um, to Russia in this conflict in Ukraine. Uh, we at CNN and others have reported that there has been some material support for Russian forces in Ukraine, but it is very worth noting uh, that that support has stopped well short of lethal aid. Um, that is something that, according to the CIA director, as of a few months ago, China was, was actively considering. Um, that they were mulling it at, at the high levels of uh, the, you know, China's uh, national security apparatus. But as far as we know, for now, uh, China has not crossed that line. And, and that is certainly something uh, that, uh, that, that the U.S. officials do not want to, 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 see, to, to, to see China do. Um, and when the, when the, the, uh, the possibility of a, a tactical nuclear weapon being used in Ukraine uh, is often raised, one of the reasons that many think that it will not happen is because it would certainly upset the Chinese. And so it, to, to some extent, uh, the Chinese are also seen as, as a calibrating factor, uh, having a moderating effect on uh, the Russians when it comes to their war uh, in Ukraine. But that is certainly something that is going to be discussed uh, when Secretary uh, Blinken travels to Beijing. Julia? Yes, yeah, certain lines are clear, but perhaps not enough. Alex, good to have you with us. Thank you. Alex Marquardt there. Now, the Japanese military says it's launched an investigation after a cadet at a training center turned his gun on instructors during an exercise earlier today. Two soldiers were killed and another injured in the attack. Paula Hancocks has more. 
Gun crime is rare in Japan, and it is even more rare when it comes to the military. This incident, though, happened at nine o'clock this morning, Wednesday morning,、uh, and it was during a live fire training exercise at a unit in Gifu Prefecture in central Japan. Now, officials say that one cadet fired towards other members of his unit during、uh, this exercise. We understand two have lost their lives, both servicemen, a 25-year-old and a 52-year-old. Uh, who are part of the Moriyama garrison? Another 25-year-old has also been injured. Now we are being told that the individual is in custody at this point, but they have not offered a motive, at least not publicly, as to why this has happened. Officials saying that the suspected、uh, shooter is a cadet who joined the Ground Self-Defence Force in April. Now we have heard from、uh, the chief of staff of the、uh, SDF, Yasunori Morishita. He has said that an investigation has been launched to find out why this happened, to make sure it can never happen again. And he said, "Quote: This kind of incident should." Never happen in an organisation that handles weapons. Now, gun crime, as I say, as a whole, is is very uncommon in Japan. But、uh, we have seen、uh, some incidents over recent months. Last month, for example, there was a shooting where a man killed four people, including two police officers. Last year, the high-profile assassination of former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. But to put it into context, last year there were just nine firearms、uh, incidents for the entire year. So it Has one of the lowest、uh, gun crime rates in the world, but of course this incident is different. It is within the military where they are able to have access、uh, to guns, which the majority of the population does not, and that is why the chief of staff says there needs to be an investigation to make sure this never happens again. Paula Hancock, CNN, Seoul. I think we're in desperate need of some good news now. And the father of the children who survived a plane crash and more than a month spent in the Colombian jungle calls their rescue a miracle. All four are still recovering in hospital, but Stefano Posibon has the latest. On Tuesday, the father of the indigenous children、uh, that were rescued last week in the Colombian Amazon rainforest after spending 40 days alone in the jungle sat down with CNN to recount、uh, how that encounter was. After that experience,、uh, and especially the flight on the military helicopter that took them out of the jungle last Friday. The moment we found the kids, we started to see thunder and lightning bolts. We left at the right moment. Ten minutes later, and the helicopter could not have taken us. Mr. Ranocchi is the biological father of the two youngest children and the stepfather of the oldest two. His late wife, Magdalena Mukutui, died in that fatal airplane crash on May the first. The children remain in medical observation in the Colombian Central Military Hospital here in Bogota, and they are receiving both psychological and physical support as they recover from that harrowing experience. Meanwhile, the Colombian military forces have said that 70 commandos remain. In the jungle to try to search and rescue Wilson, a canine unit that was lost in the do- in the search after making contact with the four children last week. For CNN, this is Stefano Pozzebon, Bogota. Lots of heroes there. Okay, coming up after the break, we return to Milan and the state funeral of the former Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi. The assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. 
at this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome back to First Move, and it's a wait-and-see Wednesday on Wall Street. Stocks little changed in early trade as today's Fed interest rate decision looms large. Investors looking for a pal punt, a.k.a. no rate hike. But a hawkish pause might still rattle investors, i.e. if he signals that they may have to take further action ahead. More encouraging, though, inflation news for the Federal Reserve policymakers pre-market, with prices at the factory gate falling by a greater-than-expected three-tenths of a percent month-over-month in May. Down is good. And stocks in the news, too, today include Google, the EU, filing new antitrust charges against the company because of, quote, inherent conflicts of interest in digital advertising that officials say threatens competition. The EU now looking, it seems, to target Google's ad business. Also, AMD shares moving higher, the company unveiling a new line of chips for the artificial intelligence market, a shot across the bow potentially for industry leader NVIDIA. Okay, let's return now to Milan Cathedral and the state funeral for Silvio Berlusconi. Proceedings began around 35 minutes ago and big screens have been installed in the city's main square as thousands of people pay their respects. I want to bring in Mattia Ferraresi. He's the managing editor of the newspaper Domani. Launched in 2020, Domani was promoted as being a progressive, independent voice for the nation. And of course, today's events dominate the front cover. Mattia, great to have you with us on the show. Can you just start by describing what you see as Silvio Berlusconi's legacy, his impact on the culture of Italy? Hi, Julia. It's great to be here. Uh, I think uh, it is safe to define Berlusconi as a transformative leader. And when I mean transform, when I say transformative, I mean really somebody who changed completely the game, both in terms of politics and but also in terms of language and culture. And the Italian imagination has been deeply shaped, and Italian politics has deeply shaped as well by his model, which was based on. Uh, celebrity and based on his is being a tycoon, a successful man, and bringing that flavor into politics, and with that being a, an extremely polarizing figure, as as I'm sure we all know. Yeah, I spent quite a lot of time myself reporting in uh, Italy through various elections, and um, you wrote an op-ed for um, the New York Times, and I think you said it brilliantly that he seemed to radiate optimism. He was a larger-than-life character, but he also had this knack for tapping into the passions of the populace and distilling his message into just a few bullet points. He was a very powerful communicator, whatever that communication was. Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was a powerful communicator. You're, I think you're totally right. And his sort of legacy is a testament to that. At the same time, as you suggested, there was an element of populism in the sense of like being able to, to capture, uh, to intercept the passions of, of the demos. Uh, but at the same time, I think it's, it, it can be a little bit reductive 
to call him a populist in the sense we mostly use this word today to describe like far right leaders or like authoritarian types. It, it was kind of different. I think it was a son of the 80s. It was more in the vein of, of um, Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher in terms of his approach to life, which was, it was really a kind of like sunshine in my pocket type of person and exuding optimism. Even the um, head of the state, Sergio Mattarella, not a fan politically of Silvio Berlusconi, in his communique uh, to acknowledge and to, to, to celebrate his is and to remember is, is is that mentioned that as a very last word is like optimism, which is not a quality I think we normally associate with, uh, you know, a right wing populist of this particular age. And of course, Trump come to mind. Yeah, I mean, you wrote the op ed pointing out the similarities between former President Donald Trump and what we saw in Silvio Berlusconi, exorbitant egos, openly admired strong men, obsessed with TV, um, using lewd jokes. But you also made that point that actually the optimism that you got from, from Silvio Berlusconi was very um, in stark contrast with um, former President Donald Trump. But you said actually Silvio Berlusconi hated the comparison between them. Oh. It, it, it did. It did. Absolutely. It's not something he liked. For sure, part of it was the fact that he obviously acknowledged the, the, the clear similarities between the two, the tycoon past, the obsession with media, what you just said, clearly. But the parallel, I think, made him like very uncomfortable. My belief is that also part of it was that stark difference that he perceived in terms of like really personality and flavor and approach to life. Berlusconi was like uh, we, the, 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 the broad and almost parodistical and comical uh, smile is definitely the type of like face that defines better Berlusconi's personality, whereas Trump uh, is like is, is grim. Is, is, is in my view what defines them and what defines his personality. So I think for, for Berlusconi, the part of the fact that he didn't like that parallel was tied to this difference in personality that I think, I think made, made sense. I think we're, we're true, we're there. Yeah, and he deeply condemned the January 6 um, attacks in the United States as well. Um, but certainly my sort of memory of him on the international stage as well was other world leaders laughing at some of his antics rather than um, perhaps what we saw from the former president um, of the United States. How do you think Silvia Berlusconi would want to be remembered, Mattia? I think he wants to be remembered as a... Um, really somebody who transformed the political game in Italy. I, I think that's what he wants. Probably this is what every every le political leader aspires to, not just being like a good president or a good head of state, but being somebody who, who's rewriting the rules of the game. I, I think ultimately that's what we wanted, like explore uncharted territories, launch new initiatives, uh, make um, make the, the the game change. Think about the fact that Berlusconi's uh, run in politics uh, overlaps and, and and defined like a, a different uh, era in in Italian politics. So it's a different system. A new republic, we call it, started 
uh, when, when Berlusconi uh, came in. And it was right in the middle of the 90s. Uh, Berlin Wall fell just a few years before yes. the Cold War ended. There was that, that sense that everything was possible and Berlusconi was the person who could make that possible. I think that was what is defining the most, what he wanted to be the defining feature of his own, of his own life. I think the debate will be on whether for better or worse, but he was certainly transformative, I think. Mattia, we agree. Great to have you with us. Mattia sure. Ferraresi there, Managing Editor of Domani Newspaper. Thank you. And that's it for the show. Marketplace Asia is up next, and I'll leave you with some images of that memorial and funeral service for Sylvia Bernasconi. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.